0: We are going to, well, I'm going to begin (laughs) a series on the book of Exodus. Uh, I'm taking Pastor Keith's um, lead. Uh, I do think it will be easier to preach a series from a book rather than wondering each time, what am I going to preach about, what am I going to preach about? I know what I'm going to preach about every time. It's going to come from the book of Exodus. So that is where we will begin today. Um. As I shared Wednesday night, I'm a pretty avid golfer. I enjoy golf. I don't know why. I'm not very good at it. It's terribly frustrating. Um, But I really enjoy it. And Barbara enjoys it as well when her um, back or hip will allow her to do it. So Friday afternoon, we play with some other couples every Friday afternoon. It's, It's more really of a social event than it really is about golf. golf is the excuse to get together and Friday we showed up and as we pull up in the parking lot the downpour begins no golf on Friday the previous Friday just before we left the house text on the phone no golf today it's raining the previous Friday we had just got started we got three holes in and down it comes The plans of men. So yesterday, my plans were, I'm going to mow the grass in the morning while it's cool. I'm going to finish this sermon, and I'm going to play golf. Anybody remember what happened yesterday afternoon? (laughs) (laughs) So the plans of men. This morning, my routine every morning, I get up, I let the dogs out, while a cup of coffee is making in the Keurig. I'm gonna sit on the patio for an hour, sometimes more, every morning, and I'm gonna drink a couple cups of coffee. The dogs are gonna do their business, and I'm just gonna sit in the quiet, the quietness of the creation. And as the light begins to break through, the squirrels are scurrying about, the birds start singing. There's not a lot of traffic. It's quiet for the most part. I usually read something, sometimes scripture, sometimes a study book. And then the crows begin their conversation. And that kind of, it brings violence to the morning for me. (laughs) And about the time the crows start their conversation, our little dogs start barking at the people walking by. And the peace is over. The, The plan is laid to rest. So... It's as if they're all telling me, okay, Mike, you've sat here long enough, you've drank enough coffee, it's time to get moving. So this morning, I get up, I go out there, ready to face the day, what do I find? Rain. (laughs) Again, no squirrels, no birds singing, disappointment. Dogs didn't care a lot about it either. But the rain did not last long, and so I thought, oh, it's just an early morning shower. Fifteen minutes later, it's raining again. But isn't that the case in Florida very often? And as often happens, it's pouring down rain and the sun bursts through. It's pouring down rain and the sun is shining bright as can be. It's one cloud over my house apparently. So as I'm sitting out there this morning, naturally I'm thinking about this sermon. Do you have it together? Is it ready? Um can you do this? And it dawned on me that even though it's been rainy and cloudy a lot lately, the sun coming out reminded me, the sun didn't go anywhere. There were just some clouds obscuring it. But it was still there. In fact, the sun has a great deal to do with why those clouds were there. The sun is an integral part of what scientists call the water cycle. It's how we get rain. The sun has a whole lot to do with that rain that comes down. The water cycle depends on the sun. Without the sun, we would have no rain. So I'm thinking about this sermon and the situation the Israelites are in. They're enslaved in Egypt. They're under a very dark cloud of bondage. They had enjoyed some pretty good times in Egypt prior to that, but no longer. Now they were slaves to a really harsh taskmaster. And the plans that God had for them seemed to be a thing of the past, a plan destined for failure. The dark clouds had indeed rolled in and settled for what was a very long storm. So let's go to the text now, uh, Exodus chapter 1, and I'm going to read the verse... Uh, 22 verses, all of chapter 1. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Ruman, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, And then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph, and said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Father, we ask that your spirit might work among us this morning, the spirit that you have given us that resides in each of your children. We pray that your spirit might illumine our eyes and our hearts to hear the glories of you from your word. So in this book of Exodus, it is a book that is often referred to as the Gospel of Moses we're going to see idolatry on full display we'll see how God deals with idolatry we're gonna see some tremendous miracles um, events from the hand of God we're gonna be an eyewitness to human stubbornness hard-heartedness we'll see people just like you and I who grumble and complain in spite of what's been done for them and we're gonna see that God is faithful to his promises even promises that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. We're going to see the significance of the creation story to Exodus. We're going to find out that we can't properly understand Exodus without some understanding of the creation story. The book of Exodus, along with the event itself, is one of the most significant events and important books of the Hebrew history. We're going to see that the book of Exodus establishes God's pattern of redemption, both for Israel as well as for you and I. Now, Exodus is about a man, Moses. He's very central to the narrative in a way that no other character in the Bible is, not even Abraham, who dominates much of Genesis, is. Moses makes no secret of his inadequacy when God calls him, how he could get things wrong, of how he had to face the intense pressure of leading a people in the way God required. Moses is very much at the center of the book of Exodus, but he is not the hero. He does not seek to win a claim for himself. He's the man of God. Exodus is about a nation. It's about a nation moving from slavery in Egypt to freedom. It's the spiritual story of a people finding their way to God. People who were still experiencing the tension and being torn in two different directions by the ways and attitudes of their past, their slavery in Egypt, and the calling that God had placed on them. They had to learn that they were just not God's people, but they had to learn how to live true to that calling. And they didn't succeed in that in the book of Exodus. They didn't succeed in the calling God had given them. So Exodus is not only written about them, but it's also written for their next generation, the second generation of Israelites, that we pick up in the book of Numbers, so that they might understand the status they'd been accorded to them. They would learn from the past mistakes and find from God the strength they needed. Ultimately, Exodus is about God. The God of the covenant The God who has instituted a new relationship between himself and those whom he called to be his people. It's about how he teaches them. There are times of silence and there are times of great action. It's about how he introduces himself to them. How he acts on their behalf and shows them the real difference it makes. That he is their God. It's a book about patience, mostly God's patience. And he shows it as he leads them out of Israel as they grumble and complain all the way. It's about God who is faithful to his ancient promises. And we'll see as we get down the road, there's a line where God says, So that the world will know my name and know that I am God. That's what the book of Exodus is about. So, I didn't read it in our text this morning, but if we looked at the Hebrew text of Exodus, we would see that it begins with the word and. Now, we don't begin sentences in the English language with the word and, do we? We just don't do that. But the Hebrew does. And so we have and. These are the generations of. This is an exact repeat of Genesis 46, where God instructs Jacob, who later is known as Israel, to go down into Egypt, where God promises to make him a great nation. Genesis 46 tells us the same thing we see in the first five verses, and then follows the death of Joseph. And we see in our text that number was 70. In verse 7, we see that they were fruitful and multiplied, and increased greatly. Exactly what God promised Jacob in Exodus 46. So the text immediately connects us back to Genesis with the word and. We can't understand Exodus without some knowledge of Genesis. Of course, the original audience had some knowledge of Genesis, didn't they? It was written for them, the second generation. It was their story. It's the story of their ancestors and the stories of God's promises to them. But it's not just their story. It is our story as well. Paul tells us in Romans 11 that we have been grafted in, into Israel. We have been grafted into God's people. Their story is, is our story you might say it's your family photo album it's the family history it's your ancestry.com if you will so the Israelites multiplied greatly where else have we heard that command or that sentence before that promise from God that blessing from God In the book of Genesis of course we know that it's a part of the covenant promise to Abraham don't we I will make you a great nation You'll have many descendants. Where else do we see that? Noah in Genesis 9, after the flood subsides, and God covenants with creation. What did he say? He blessed Noah and his sons and told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God told them these things as he was establishing a covenant. God had executed judgment on the entire creation because of the sinfulness of man. In a sense, he decreated creation. Now, after the flood, he's bringing creation back to life. And if we were to keep reading Genesis 9, we would see that God essentially is renewing the very same covenant he made with Adam in the garden. Now the covenant is made with Noah. In Genesis 2, going back to Adam and Eve, we find God blessing them and telling them to be fruitful and multiply. Of course, just like he does with Noah, he gives Adam and Eve dominion over the creation. Now, you you might be sitting there wondering, why are you telling me all this? I thought we were talking about Exodus. Well, it's because of the fall. It's because of sin's entrance into man's dominion. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I still don't get it. I don't see where you're going with this. Well, stay with me. I'm going to show you the significance of all this. After the fall, God hands out some judgment. And a result of these judgment, all of creation is cursed. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. Let me read that to you from Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Now if you're a note taker, make yourself a little note that he sent them out He put the guards at the east of the garden. He put the cherubim and the seraphim at the east of the garden. That will become significant much later. So now the creature created in God's very own image has tasted spiritual death, will ultimately face physical death, and now we're cast out of paradise and we are left to make our own way by the sweat of our brows, in a cold and cruel world. But worse than all of that, we were expelled from God's intimate and direct presence. What used to be a blessing to us, being God's people, in God's place, living under God's rule, was now a a threat to our very survival. Sinful humans could no longer be in the direct presence of God. God couldn't look upon sin like that. So now we're going to tie this back to Exodus. Keeping creation in mind, the covenants with Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Be faithful, multiply, subdue the earth. Remember part of God's promise to Abraham was he was going to give him a broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land later described as like a garden. Is it starting to become clear now what's about to happen in the Exodus? God has begun to fulfill the promise to Abraham and the commands and blessings to Adam and Noah. We saw that in our text. Exodus is the beginning of the return of sinful man into God's intimate presence. It's the beginning of that journey. A return of God's people to a garden-like setting In his direct presence the way it was supposed to be that will take many many years to completely reverse the curse against man but here in Exodus God is beginning that long and arduous journey so we see in verse 8 trouble begins for the Israelites a new king one who did not know maybe he wasn't familiar with the deeds of Joseph or he simply didn't care about the past. His concern was that the Israelites had multiplied into a great people. In verse 10, he describes to the Egyptians how they need to handle the problem. If they don't do something, the Israelites may go to war against us and join our enemies. They may escape the land. So his answer is to enslave God's people and afflict them with hard labor, making them build cities and monuments to the Pharaoh. Verse 12 through 14 describes that the more the Egyptians afflicted them, the more the Israelites multiplied. So what we're seeing here in this early stage, what's going to become much more obvious later, who the real antagonist in this story is. It's not really a battle of Israel versus Pharaoh. Or even Moses versus Pharaoh. It's a battle of God versus Pharaoh. The Egyptian king, as we're going to see, is presented as the anti-God figure, repeatedly placing himself in direct opposition to God's redemptive plan. And we see that here. In just a couple of chapters, Pharaoh's going to say to Moses, Who is this God that I should do what you ask? In order to understand what Pharaoh's doing, where do we have to go? Oh, back to Genesis. Specifically Genesis 3. When God curses the serpent, who is a representative of Satan, God says He will put enmity between his seed, Satan's seed, and the seed of the woman. That term enmity means a hateful dislike, a willingness to destroy the other. Now, obviously, Satan doesn't foster physical children with humans, but he does foster spiritual children. And we know that because in the Gospels, Jesus frequently referred to the Jewish leaders, he tells them, You're of your father, the devil. They were not the seed of the woman, they were the seed of the serpent, according to Christ. That enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is exactly what Jesus was referring to. And this is the picture we need to have of what's going on in Exodus. The seed of the serpent, represented by Pharaoh, is at enmity with the seed of the woman, God's people. We see this battle begin right away in Genesis chapter 4 between Cain and Abel, don't we? Adam and Eve give birth to these two sons, and we find the brothers making offerings to God, which included fruits of the ground from Cain and livestock from Abel. And when God confronts Cain later about the murder of his brother, Abel, he tells Cain that because of this, the ground will no longer yield its produce to you when you till the ground. And he further told Cain, you're going to be a wanderer and a vagrant. Here's the first picture of the two seeds at enmity, at war. And it does seem immediately that the seed of the serpent has the upper hand. Because the seed of the woman has been killed. So Cain goes out, his wife bears him a son... Cain builds a city names a city after his son. This first city is what theologians often refer to as the city of man. Now, God had commanded Cain to be a wanderer and a vagrant, but that didn't suit Cain. Instead, he built a city and he named it after his offspring. That's how ancient peoples made a name for themselves. It's how you preserved your legacy. Cain sought his own protection, even though God promised to protect him. He sought his own glory for his name. He sought to build things to make his life better and satisfy his desires. He sought to create a city of people who would bow down and follow his rules. He's making a name for himself. Don't you think Cain would have been so right at home in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel? as they sought to build a tower in order to make a name for themselves and to keep from being scattered over the land as wanderers. But on the other hand, God's at work. He gives Adam and Eve another child, and they name him Seth. And if we read the family lineage of Cain, we're going to find that each son was more sinful than the previous. In fact, one brags about it later about how great his crimes were compared to his father's. When it comes to Seth, we see that this is the next son, that his people began to call on the Lord once again. The two-seed story is very much alive and well. Here's a quote I saw recently from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle. (laughs) Not Ryle, Ryle the world will let a man go to hell quietly and never try to stop him but the world will never let a man go to heaven quietly they will do all they can to turn him back Ryle's quote is a picture of the two seeds at enmity with each other the world the seed of the serpent is at war with those of the kingdom of God the seed of the woman the battle rages around us every day every moment of our lives it's why we see so much evil and turmoil in our world the seed of the serpent is seeking dominance and control over the seed of the woman we know he's defeated he knows he's defeated yet he still strives for dominance his desire to destroy the seed of the woman just as Cain destroyed his own brother I want you to see one more thing in regard to the task Pharaoh put upon the Hebrew people. Notice what the task is. They're making bricks out of straw and mud. What are the bricks for? To build cities for Pharaoh. To build monuments for Pharaoh. Why do kings build monuments? So people recognize that's the king. And if you're the king over a really big kingdom, you have monuments all over the kingdom because some of your people aren't right there to know, oh, that's the king. We're monuments. We're monuments of the great king. We created in God's image monuments of the true king. Doesn't Pharaoh sound an awful lot like Cain here? Build me a city. Doesn't he sound an awful lot like the seed of the serpent? An awful lot like Satan? See, Exodus paints us a picture of this enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Pharaoh is that picture in the book of Exodus. And when enslaving the people doesn't work, Instead, it makes them multiply more. Pharaoh comes up with a new plan, and he attempts to include the midwives to accomplish the plan. In verses 15 through 21, the seed of the serpent does not rest. Pharaoh's been thwarted to extinguish Israel. The people simply increased. Now he orders infanticide to be performed on the male Hebrew children, by the midwives. This is butchery. It's an attempt to annihilate Israel from the face of the earth. It seems that the Pharaoh is ordering Hebrew slaves to perform a terrible deed against their own people. Well, why would he only destroy the boys? Well, first, the males could grow up to be soldiers and could serve in the army against Egypt, the Hebrew women could easily be assimilated into the Egyptian society through intermarriage, and it's through bloodlines that continued through the male lineage, and finally it's an attempt on the part of Pharaoh and the seed of the serpent to thwart the promise of a male redeemer, the promise we see in Genesis 3.15. So, Pharaoh's attempt really is a picture. He anticipates all the Antichrist of history. Wherever there's a reign of terror or a culture of death, we can be sure that Satan is at work trying to destroy the work of God. The slogans might change, but the sin remains the same. Whether it's Adolf Hitler, whether it's China and their one-family-one-child policy, or whether it's the pro-choice movement here in this country, opposition to life is at enmity with God. What did Adam name his wife? He named her Eve. Why did he name her Eve? What does that mean? The mother of all that is living. Imagine the horror the midwives must have felt. Their chosen profession was to bring life into the world, not exterminate life. But that's what Pharaoh asked them to do. In Genesis, the serpent approached Eve with the idea of tasting the forbidden fruit. Now, she's not alone in her failure. Adam bears the ultimate responsibility according to scriptures. But Satan approached the woman she took and ate. Here in Exodus, Pharaoh, representing the serpent, representing Satan, comes to two women to try to get them to break God's law, to prevent the seed of the woman from going forward. But they feared God. They didn't do as Pharaoh commanded. This time the seed of the serpent is defeated by the seed of the woman. By the mother of all that is living. And God rewards their faithfulness with families of their own. But Pharaoh doesn't give up. He now turns to his own people, the Egyptians, and he orders them to destroy every Hebrew male child that's born. Each instance of his oppression is intensified. First he enslaves the people. Then he orders the Hebrew workers to kill their own people. And now he's commanding his own people to perform a holocaust. He wants to erase the Hebrew people. The seed of the serpent's goal is to massacre the lineage of the seed of the woman. We see this again in the New Testament, don't we? In Matthew 2, where we read, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Herod, just like Pharaoh, attempted to destroy the male lineage of God's people, in order to kill the coming Redeemer. This theme of children is very important to the book of Exodus. That's probably another little note you want to make if you're a note keeper. We're going to see some some things about children in the book of Exodus as we go through it. Now Satan likes nothing better than to torment you and I. He used Pharaoh to persecute the Israelites... And it's important to remember how much they suffered and how much they learned from their suffering. The oppression of these people obviously raises questions for us about suffering. Jesus asked about suffering when he was dying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the suffering in our lives that puts the question marks in our faith. And few of us have faced persecution that the Israelites faced in Egypt. We do at times find ourselves in very difficult circumstances, challenging, which lead us to ask questions. Where are you, God? What's happening to me? And as Christians, it's pretty easy for us to all read Romans eight twenty-eight. All things work together for the good of those who love him. Yeah, we can, yeah, I agree with that, 100%. But it's a whole lot harder when it's happening to you or to someone you love. It's easier to agree with that when things are going well, when there are no dark clouds. But when hard providence crashes upon the shores of our lives, Sometimes relentlessly, like, like the waves coming in on the gulf, just over and over. It's easy to question Romans 8.28. I've done it myself many times. What about you? Have you ever questioned it? Have you ever wondered in your own trials how, what good can possibly come out of this? Admittedly, it's difficult to trust God when our life seems like it's falling apart but it is very often when our life seems the most chaotic when we are at our weakest at our wits end that's when God shows up and he works through that weakness he sows seeds of redemption very often in the soil of despair in a barren soil God enjoys confounding the wisdom of the wise, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. We see in the book of Exodus, we will see how God delivered Israel from this bondage to the seed of the serpent. And God had many reasons for allowing the hardships. The most obvious thing was to help them grow. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The irony is that this is exactly what Pharaoh was trying to stop. Again, as Paul says, conventional wisdom was turned on its head. Charles Spurgeon, who I'm not, will not quote often, but I think this is good. He said, in all probability, if they had been left to themselves, the Hebrews, in in slavery, they would have melted And absorbed into the Egyptian race and lost their identity as God's people. They were content. They had grown content to be in Egypt. And were quite willing to, um, I'm going to change this a little bit, in the words of Steve Martin, walk like an Egyptian. But they had to be a separate people. They were God's people. They were a special people. They were to be a, a royal nation, a royal priesthood. They were the people chosen by God to be His people. And they had to be different. They had to be holy. Take heart. We are of the seed of the woman. We are the children of promise to Abraham. We are heirs with Christ Jesus. We have to expect that the seed of the serpent is always waiting in the wings to devour us. He wants to take you back to Egypt. He wants to take you back to building your own glory, your own kingdom, if you will. He wants you to return to a life of slavery, to sin. He wants you to question the word and commands of God. He wants the dark clouds to roll in and blot the sun out from your life. Look to God's Word when that happens. When dark clouds come on the horizon, and it seems like that's all you can see, you can look to the book of Exodus. Look at your family album recorded thousands of years ago. See your ancestors' failures and lack of faith, and see how thousands of years ago God was faithful and delivered them in spite of all their wickedness, in spite of all their failures. See how he continued to bless them time and time again. The weather forecast today is for more rain. Lots of it. It's going to be cloudy for a good part of the day. Sorry if you had outdoor plans. But behind those clouds, you know the sun is still there. The sun is still shining. When the dark clouds come into your life, and they will, the Son of God is still there. Still seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Thanks be to God.